well, God, there's a car pulled over. I don't know who it is. Could be a serial killer, but it's better than what I'm going. I'm going to get in the car with them. But I'd like to know if I could trust them. Passenger door open. This lady gets out. And I can tell she's not a teenager. You know, she has hair, but hair kind of blowing back in the wind. And she's walking very purposefully towards me. And I can feel from this woman. And the closer she gets, the harder I'm crying. And she gets between me and traffic. And immediately I was like, this woman is a protector. Mm. She gets between me and traffic. And she just slides her arm around my waist and gets my hand. And she goes, ma'am, do you want to ride? And I said, I do. Hello, friends and damn givers. I'm Nick LaPara, and welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. This is the show you listen to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making our world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And most of all, thank you for joining me and us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. Friends, today's episode means so much to me. My friend Dietra joins me for an in-depth conversation about her intense, traumatic, beautiful, and ever-evolving life and story. For decades, Dietra experienced all kinds of abuse and heartbreak. She was rarely able to be her true self, constantly having to measure up to what her dad and her church and her husband and many other people wanted her to be and told her she had to be. Then, through a series of almost miraculous events, she ends up in New York City. And years later, through another series of almost miraculous events, Brandon from Humans of New York shared her story with his social media following of 30 million people in June of this past year. Dietra's life changed drastically in the days, weeks, and months since then. I'm being intentionally short and vague about Dietra's story because I want you to hear it from her. So a couple of weeks ago, we sat down at our favorite cigar shop in New York City, Harlem Cigar Bar, for some coffee, a smoke, and a beautiful conversation. A quick note on this, because we are recording in a cigar shop in Harlem, you are going to hear some things you wouldn't usually hear. Some shuffling around of people in the room. Lots of street noise, like honking and sirens and such. Please excuse those noises, but I felt it was important for us to record this conversation doing what Dietra and I find so much joy in doing, that is, smoking cigars with friends, and recording in a place where Dietra has found so much freedom and friendship over the past couple of years. A couple more things before we begin. You're going to hear in this conversation, and you'll see very quickly online, that cigars are a big deal to Dietra. And Dietra just launched her own cigar line. She has a new website where you can read her story, hear more about the nonprofit foundation she just launched, and learn more about the cigars and where you can purchase them. That website is DietrasStory.com. You can find all of the aforementioned things there, plus links to her social media and to sign up for her forthcoming newsletter and more. That's DietrasStory.com. And a quick reminder, as always, before we begin, that you can email me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything 
really. I just love hearing from you. And now without further ado, let's get right into my conversation with my friend and hero, Dietra Denise. Let's go. Dietra, my friend, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I am honored to be here. Thank you for asking. I am equally honored, maybe more, that you agreed <laughs> to do it. You, We have known each other for not even a few months at this point, and already I feel very close to you and your story. And so again, you haven't done many of these, and there's so many things happening in your life, so I'm honored that you would take the time to do it with me. And we're doing it at... So friends that are listening, you may notice some noises, some creaks, some this, some that. We are recording uh, not in an ideal environment for sound, but definitely an ideal environment Mm -hmm. for who we are and what we like to do. So we're recording at uh, Harlem Cigar Room in Harlem, uh, close to where you live. And so thank you, Harlem Cigar Room, for opening up early. Thank you, Mike, over there, for Mm -hmm. letting us do this. this is a special place for you, and we'll we'll, we'll get into that mm-hmm. uh, very soon. But let me begin by saying, and we'll talk later on in the show about some of the things that are happening in your life that you can talk about. But generally, <laughs> how are you feeling with everything going on right now? Let's let's talk present day. How are you right now? Well, June 9th, the story was turned loose into the world, and my life has dramatically changed. So how am I with all of that? I am thrilled. I am exhausted because, you know, it's been, it's everything new. I have so many open doors ahead of me right now. And they're all things that I want to do that will be challenging, but things that is in my skill set. So I'm good. I'm trying to be wise. I'm trying to um, not rush, you know, but take my time and sit back and go, okay, this is, a new season for me, and I don't have to run to the finish line and wave the baton and go, I did it now. You know, I did it now. So that tends to be how I am. Oh, this is a race. Let me finish it quickly. So I'm trying to see this is not a race. This is now my life, and I'm going to enjoy it. I'm glad for what you just said. This is not a race. Yeah. Life is a whole bunch of moments, (laughs) sometimes happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. You have no idea what none of us do, but in your circumstance, you have no idea what's coming tomorrow. No. You just got an email just a second ago. We won't talk about what <laughs> it was, but it's like, oh my God, this now this changes everything. Got to yeah. move fast on this. So many things are happening. And so, yeah, my encouragement for you is enjoy every moment as they come. <laughs> just, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. And it couldn't happen to a better person. Thank you. There's so many different directions we could take with this conversation. Your story has already been told ad nauseum (laughs) in so many different places and in so many different ways. Again, beginning in June of this year in a really big way. But if you don't mind, I want to talk about it again. I want to go through it because I've had lots of trauma in my life. I've had lots of hardships growing up in actually a very similar environment to what you grew up in. I was the kid in that environment and you were the wife, but you also experienced it as a kid and we'll get yeah. into that. And so I have I have seen that at different points in my life. I tell the story differently, different things stick out. I feel differently about certain things at mm-hmm. certain points in my life when I look back at the abuse and the 
trauma that I've experienced, sometimes I'm more grateful for it than others. Other times I'm really feeling like shit about it. And so let's go through some parts of your story. I'd love to ask you to just start at the beginning and share the things that stick out. I, 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 obviously, your life dramatically changed 30-plus years into your marriage, and, and that's a big part of the story. But as you tell your story on Humans of New York and as you've told it in many different places, the trauma and, and abuse and the sort of cultish mentality that you experienced as a wife, as a preacher's mm-hmm. wife, you also experienced as a kid. Yeah. So what was it like growing up in that environment? As a kid, are you able to discern anything with, you know, 2020 vision or understand clearly? And I'm a firstborn. So firstborns either love authority or they reject authority. Sure. I loved authority. So I was daddy's girl. I was mama's what could I do to help mom? You know, I was the one who wanted to learn. My mom told me that when I left for college, she goes, Dietra, you wanted to learn everything. And, uh, you know, we tried to help you do that. And when you went to college, we sat down and went, woof. And, you know, you you are very energetic in what you want to do. So I knew, I figured out probably at the age of 14, 15 that we were really poor. I didn't know that until then. Mm. My clothes came from Salvation Army or the kids in the church or my mother made them. I have always been someone who tries to be grateful um, for things. And like my favorite sweater came from Salvation Army and it cost a quarter. But my mom had an eye for clothing and what would look good on an individual. I loved that sweater. Now, when I got to college and began to hear stories from other pastor's daughters and they would weep and cry and and how horrible it Mm. was and how poor they were and that they had to wear clothes that came from Came, I, I could not comprehend this because to me, being a pastor's daughter was the best job in the whole world. Um, my dad is vivacious. He's well-loved. Um, you know, he's like all of us. He has imperfections. And so my mom didn't have a really enjoyable time. Um, I had fun as a kid. I lived on a bike. We didn't have a TV. So I read hundreds and hundreds of books, and I rode a bike, and I was up in the tops of trees, and I was trying to learn. So I didn't see it as a hardship. It wasn't until, you know, trying to figure out the marriage that I realized this is all I've known my whole life. Mm. That hurt. You know, that's when it, it really, really hurt. And I'm not saying, you know, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was abused as a child. There were just things that didn't happen that should have. But there was, you know, a man in the pastorate who, um, when I was 10 years old, they went to this seminar that did the umbrella thing that's in my story, you know. So I was raised with that. I was raised very strict. And then when I was married, I was the strict one in our marriage. He was not. Uh, He basically wanted everybody to leave him alone. I wanted to nurture and nourish and, you know, for them to see the world and never, don't let anybody think for yourself. So, you know, I was the one who did those kinds of things. But the type of, man, you're my possession. You're asking me a question. 
really who do you think you are had been from birth. I had a talk with my therapist yesterday about how could I have been that stupid? And I try not to call myself names. And so we had a long talk about, is it intelligence? Is it really intelligence? It's not intelligence. But I, I have a hard time with, why couldn't I see it? But if it's all you know from when you're literally pushed out into the world and the people are smiling and you get hugs and kisses and all those kinds of things, I don't know that you have any way to comprehend that it's not healthy physically, emotionally, spiritually, or any other way. I resonate with that because I have zero regrets from my upbringing. And a lot of that is due to the fact that, as you just stated so simply and eloquently, that's all we know. So as far as I'm concerned, all kids are experiencing this, or many more kids are experiencing this behind closed doors when no one's around. Because I look the same way you do when I'm out and about. When we're sure. out playing, when we're out hanging out, when we're playing, uh, you know, I grew up in Guatemala, when we're playing football, like whatever we're doing, we look the same. We're happy. We're yeah. so excited for this. So as far as I'm concerned, you're getting beat when you go home, which was my experience. You know, okay. you say th- something out of line and the anger came out, the physical, yeah. the the emotional, the spiritual abuse came out. But then five minutes later, we were back to loving each other. And, and I don't think that was fake. Yeah. My dad then and now, my dad, who's a completely changed individual, who's amazing, who loves my kids and loves all of his grandkids and loves his actual kid. Like, there's just so much love there now. Mm-hmm. He's such a gentle teddy bear now. Yeah. I believe that same love existed back then. Sure. But it was this perpetual, multi-generational cycle that hadn't been broken. Yeah. So <clears throat> all he knew how to do was, if I need to get my one or two or three of my 12 children in line, Yeah, <laughs> I need to use physical force because I don't have the patience to do it any other way. And so <laughs> I didn't know anything differently. And so even as I look back now, I don't have any regret, regrets. Yeah. I, I just, it, it, it was what it was. Yeah. And I'm glad my kids are not experiencing that. And I'm glad my siblings are not doing some of those same things to our kids. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was what it was. As the daughter of a preacher, right? Because your daddy was a preacher. Yeah. Did you ever listen to something he said from the pulpit? The way he talked about God or the way he talked about life or the way that we should be living and then experience something at home where you're like, wait, that doesn't line up. Why are you talking to them that way about how life should be, who God is, what we should be doing, and then you come home and do this. Did that ever happen, or or was there consistency in the messaging? Um, I would tell you my dad is um, very authentic from the pulpit and from at home. Were there things that I thought were inconsistent? Yes, but it has more to do with the attitude of women. Like my dad would stand in the pulpit and say, if the old barn needs paint, paint it, talking about women. But if I wore makeup, what are you doing wearing makeup? So those kinds of things, you know, but, um, no, my dad is not, my dad is just has to be the center of attention at all times. And like I would go home, I I went to my parents' house for five and a half weeks to draw a boundary with the man I was married to. I'd been drawing boundaries for like a year and a half and he would cross all of them. And I had had someone give me a book about boundaries and how you get the attention of 
an abuse, psychological abuser. So I had done these things and he just crossed them all. And so you keep making the boundaries more and hopefully they get its attention, but they could. And what happened is he outboundaried himself of my, of me. So uh, I went to my parents' house for five and a half weeks. I had no money. I couldn't go anywhere else. And it was while I was there that I, it was just like the blinders were taken off and I could see, oh my goodness, this is all I've known my whole life. Like, sure. I would go home and my dad would go, hey, I need you to cut my hair. And he did that once. I said, dad, I haven't cut hair in years, you know? And the only reason I cut my son's and husband's hair is because we had no money. He wouldn't provide for us. He wouldn't take care of money. So I got clippers and I cut everybody's hair. Come to find out I could do a really good job. But I didn't do, I mean, I did it for like six years. And I said, Dad, I don't cut hair anymore. So he would snap his fingers in my face. And he can snap his fingers and it sounds like a bomb. I don't know how he can do it. When did you become so rebellious? I was 54 years old. I said, Dad. I'm not going to cut your hair. Now, even for me to say that to him is considered rebellion. I can remember being home and one of my babies uh, was in a high chair. We were trying to pack up to get back home with my family. And I had some hot oatmeal. And so I was going to get feed it to the baby. And so I'm being rushed, you know, by the man uh, I'm married to. So I blow on the oatmeal. My dad was at the table, snapped his fingers. We don't blow on food at this table. When did you get so rebellious? For blowing on oatmeal. For blowing on oatmeal to feed my baby. And I just got mad. And my dad would say, you can get, you can get glad in the same pants you got mad in. And I didn't wear pants. He had raised me independent Baptist, even though we weren't. So I didn't wear pants because they were considered, you know, Men's rebellious. Yeah, yeah, very rebellious. So um, I, I didn't blow on any more oatmeal got the baby fed, packed up, got in the car, and we're driving out. And I told him, I said, please stop. My dad's at the door, and he's all, you know, waiting for me to, and I did. I, we stopped the car. I got out. I went and hugged him. I was crying. I said, I'm sorry. You know, I look back on those things and think, are you kidding me? And one time, every time I'd go to my dad's church, the pastor's a little church, he wanted me to sing before every service. And the church people were very gracious, you know, so because I have a low voice, I'd put together a medley of hymns. So I would go figure it out, figure out what key. I would hit my note on the piano and sing. I love singing a medley of hymns to go on a journey. So I was rehearsing one day. And the afternoon, the church built a little room for my parents to sleep in the afternoon. So my dad comes through to unlock the door. I quit singing. Keep singing. And But, but this time, you know, I'm like, no, I'm done. And uh, so he comes back up to me, stands in front of me. He doesn't actually slap me, but he does the hand motions. And with his mouth, he makes this sound. I told you to keep singing. I don't have words. And I went home that night, Sunday night. And this was when I was staying with them before. I got back to my house like the end of April and I left May 27th. It was all I could do not to put my things in my suitcase leave their home in the middle of the night. And I knew I'd have to push my suitcases a mile, mile and a half to an interstate to catch a ride, to get away. But I laid in bed and I was like, you know, God, no wonder it's very difficult. I know I got to get away. I don't know how to do it. 
but this is all I know, this mm. treatment, you know, this. So while I'm not mad at my dad, and I love my dad, I haven't spoken to him in seven years. I will no longer play this game yeah, because I'm a female. It's over. And how wonderful that your dad has come to a realization of some things. I don't think I will ever, my dad's 85. I, I don't think I will ever experience that. And I'm, you know, I don't have any regrets and I'm fine with that because he gets to make his choices yeah. and he has his own story of why he chooses that. I don't know why, but it no longer fits into a definition of me being able to be okay. I'll probably say this several times during our conversation, okay. but I'm sorry. I have I had nothing to do with your upbringing and your story up until a few months ago when we met. But I really am sorry that you and so many others, so many others being millions and millions and millions of millions and millions of women are being hurt yeah. under the authority of men who have, in some cases, rightly translated the Bible, like rightly read it. Because the Bible does have some very problematic things to say about the treatment of women, but also have horribly misinterpreted their faith. Yeah. Who God is, what they believe God wants to happen in the world. Mm -hmm. Just so much abuse. It's happening today, mm -hmm. right? This is not some problem that we can talk about that happened in the past. And we, as Christians, wherever we are in our faith, you and me, I don't, I don't know, and we'll get into that maybe. I, I am so reluctant when I say that because even though I can't leave my faith and it looks very drastically different, I have a very progressive, inclusive faith now. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm identifying with these abusers. I'm yeah. saying I'm part of the same club and that hurts. Yeah, It really does. Yeah. Now, any club we ascribe to, no matter what it is, faith or not faith, right? Political, societal, whatever club we do, there are abusers in there. Sure. Because humans are shitty and we do shitty things, right? There's not a human that doesn't have skeletons in their closet. Sure. That if their best friend or their partner or their neighbor or their coworker knew about, they'd never mm -hmm. talk to him again. We're, we're all, <laughs> we all do bad things. But I'm sorry that it happened to you. And I'm not sorry because <laughs> here you are just living, living an amazing life, not without its hardships. I want to go back to the beginning of your story to talk about a certain thing because music, you've mentioned it several times now, <laughs> and music is a big part of your life still yeah. today. Yeah. When did that start? I know in your story, you talk about these couple of songs that circumvented the Christian music hymns only mm -hmm. scenario in your house, right? Which was what I grew up with as well. Yeah. No secular music, no worldly music. But there were a couple songs that got around that. And so you would, you weren't allowed to dance. You weren't allowed to move your body, which is what we want to do when we listen to yeah. so many songs. And so you would circumvent those rules by vacuuming, and which allowed you to move. Mm -hmm. And when did music... When did you know that music was going to play a big part in your life? <laughs> hmm. Does anybody know anything when it starts or do you realize it later? No. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. Maybe when, when, do you, when do you remember being so impacted by music for the first time? For the first time? I really, you know, 
I've said this so many times, and in every show I do a Nat King Cole song. It was Nat King Cole records. It was, it was his voice while I was vacuuming and I was dusting, and his voice. His voice is velvet. I'm telling you to this day, I can be kind of uh, agitated. I can put on Nat King Cole, and it's just like it's the velvet away. of yeah. him. Just yeah, yeah, beautiful. And so. I wish I had that album. I wish I could even know what the name of that album was. But every song on there, front and back, were just beautiful. There was one song called Ain't She Sweet, and his two little girls sang on there with him. Mm. I loved that song and to hear their voices. But that is just when I knew music played a role in how I felt, you know, how I, the grace. He is elegant, and it is graceful, you know, when he sings. One of these days, in fact, I'm working with my therapist doing EMDR of trying to be able to dance because I want to learn ballroom dancing. Um, story in my marriage about that that just breaks my heart. But um, I want to have that grace and move to it, you know. Do I want to just be able to move to music? Yes, but I like order. I like a purpose. And so it was Nat King Cole and singing and... Uh, I, I think also really what contributed is um, my mom t- told me, my mom is dead, but anyway, my mom would tell me that um, I sang because when I was little, they would drive across town, I'd throw up, had car sickness. Mm, mm. So she would have to drive my dad to work and she would always chain, chain, take a set of clothes for me because I would throw up. Well, one day we had, I was two and a half, my baby sister's born, and I threw up all over her. <laughs> so uh, mama learned if she would stand me on the hump before seatbelt, stand me on the hump in the back seat and make me sing, I never threw up. Oh, wow. So I just grew up knowing when you get in the car and the door's shut and it moves, you start, start singing. singing. But I didn't know the history because she started me singing when I was really young. But when I was four years old, my dad pastored a little bitty rock church up in Arkansas, Spring Creek Baptist Church in Springdale. And he stood me in a chair at four and told me to sing. And it was, take up thy cross and follow me, I heard the Savior say. Well, I got out, you know, the first few words and then just laid over on the pulpit and just cried. So he had to finish singing the song. And, and, I, and I love that that's my emotional journey with music because that's kind of how it is now. I sing and cry. But for me as a four-year-old, I'd seen a lot of people sing in church by the time I was four. Right. Nobody ever stood in a chair. Why did I have to stand in a chair? Didn't occur to me I'm a kid. I'm sure you can't see me behind the pulpit. But I can, as an adult, go, why didn't he stand me beside the pulpit? Mm. Why didn't I get to stand on the floor and sing? But no, to me, this kind of represents I want you how I want you, not what would be good for you. Does that make sense? So, um, I started singing when I was four, and then was in a little kid's choir, four whole notes and a half. My little sister was the half, and there were four of us kids about the same age. So I started singing early, loved it. Um, music's just a way to let things out of you or to express things that you don't get to in other ways. And so it became very valuable to my emotional well-being. I want to talk about... So there's this narrative that happens a lot of times when when young people grow up in homes that either they're being abused or they don't agree with the way the parents are living. 
the, the, they talk about these rebellious college years. They, they were finally able to get out and go to college <laughs> and sow their wild oats and <laughs> and then go on and live their lives, right? Because mm-hmm. you're an adult now. That yeah. didn't happen for you. No. In fact, college was a continuation of sorts of your, you know, you were shy, you were timid, you didn't really... I, I love your realization. You talk about your realization that you don't really know how to act around boys, but they were lining up to they were lining up to hang out, hang out with you. Yeah. And you realize now, maybe then, I don't know. You realize now that's because even back then, they were attracted to who you are. You, yeah. You bring so much to the table. Yeah. You bring rich to the table. Yeah. Right. Talk about those college years and how that led to. Um. Yeah, you ultimately meeting your ex mm-hmm. ex husband of thirty four years, thirty four years, thirty four yeah. years, because again, a lot of kids get out, yeah. and you weren't able to for whatever reason. Yeah, it, it, you and, and and interestingly enough, I've heard several times where again, you were a kid, you didn't know what you were experiencing, you didn't know all of it was wrong. It just it is what it is, and so maybe there was even a little bit of like this is all you knew. So maybe this is the way it is. Maybe I need to marry a guy like this because this is how life is going to be to me. I don't yeah. know. How, how, how was that, that, that time in your life? Well, I went to college. I got a full scholarship to sing in an ensemble to raise money. My parents lived in Palm Bluff, Arkansas, but about a month after I'd been at college, they moved and he began to pastor in Montgomery, Alabama. But like I told you, when I was 10, my parents went to this conference with this umbrella thing. Yep. So I was raised, you know, your authority is your dad, and then it moves to the man you marry. Now, um, so when I went to college, I went with rules from my dad. You are not allowed to single date. You can only go out with a guy if there's, you know, if there's your, he didn't say double dating, but his rule was you're never allowed to be alone with a guy. Now, I have a very concrete mind, okay? So there was one guy, he invited me out a couple of times to go hear him preach. Don't you just love when a guy wants you to go on a date and go hear him preach? It's an amazing date, right? Amazing date. So somebody would always have to go with us. And, you know, I would get one of the You had to have a chaperone to go hear your date preach? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, we we went out a couple of times, but we were on the campus. We would hang out a little bit. Well, one day we're standing in, in line to eat, and he grabbed my wrist, and he hurt. And I said, let go of me. You're hurting me. And he didn't, and he left a bruise. And I decided I was done. Now, as I handled everything, because I was taught you have to make a proper appeal to authority if you don't agree. You cannot just speak. You have. So I was just, you know, God, I can't handle this. He needs to break up with me. And the next night, he broke up with me. So I was out of that situation. I remember calling, I'd call my mom and dad every Saturday night. Um, he said, so what'd you do this week? And I said, well, Sunday, I went to lunch with some of the guys. And he, it was just, you could feel the parental silence and from Montgomery, Alabama and Conway, Arkansas. You went out to eat with multiple guys. Yeah, and I named three guys. I thought I had told you. Not to be alone. I said, you told me not to be alone with a guy. I figured if there was three of them, I was okay. If there's anything worse than being alone with one guy is being, being alone, alone with, with three. three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, uh, you didn't tell me that. You know, the rule was. One on one. One on one. So I don't know. I, in my mind, even though my dad was far away, God would know if I obeyed. 
Now, let's take out the rules. For me, where I am in life, uh, I don't go to church, but my heart is still attuned to the one true living God. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks about me anymore, what anybody says about me. Is my heart open? Because to me, as long as I'm open, and I think my life has proved this, good things can come into my life, no matter how horrible things can get. So even though I could have done what I wanted to do, he would have heard about it. There would have been this, you're disobeying me. I can't handle that type of, mm. I can't handle it. In fact, when I was a kid, I'd run telling, uh, I did this. I just wanted it over. Now, my dad would spank us, but I don't think I was ever beaten or abused with that. There were just, if you lied, you got to spank Consequences. Yeah, yeah, there were consequences. Um, I, I've never seen it as a bad thing in my life. But I wasn't beaten. You yeah. know, there's a difference. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, even in college, I had these rules. And plus, my dad had told me several times as a teenager, when you get married, you got married somebody who can conquer you because you're too strong. So I thought that was what it was going to have to be because my dad was the authority on everything, you know. And my dad is a very intelligent, vivacious man, fun to be around. Um, and he is very knowledgeable in a lot of things. So I just assumed daddy knew and that I had to be conquered, you know. And so, yeah, the guys at college, you know, would ask. I would tell them, no, they'd go on their way. And there was this one guy. Um, he and I were both in this ensemble. And so like a month after school started, he asked to meet me in the conference room of the library. Isn't that crazy that you want to have a meeting with somebody in the conference room of the library? Mm, mm. You know, when he's six foot six, so he's sitting across the conference table from me. You know, I'm pulled up in the little chair facing him. Well, he's turned sideways, you know, sitting back, legs crossed. And this is how he opens it. There's a lot of guys on this campus that want to go out with you, and I'm one of them. What's a guy got to do to get a date with you? You know, not a, I'm really, I would really like to spend some time with you. And I, like I said, I'm very concrete and very matter-of-factly. I was like, well, I have, and I was raised on you have standards about who you date and you don't break them, sure. even if it means you never have a date. Mm -hmm. So I had, I had these things. And I, he said, oh, let me hear them. So I ran through them. He met all of them, but one. And my dad believed that if a guy's hair touched his ears and collar, he was rebellious. And so, you know, a guy has to have short hair. Yep. So he had longer hair. Are you trying to tell me I have to cut my hair? I said, oh, no, I don't want you to cut your hair. I don't want to go out with you. You just asked me, you know, what are my rules for going out? That's one of them, but I don't want to go out with you. And so for some reason, he took this as a challenge, and this became a deal finally, in my third year of college. But what he did is he went out and told everybody, and he gathered allies to the point where people were coming to me. How are you being so mean to him? Why won't you go out with him? I was like, I don't want to. One day, and I talked to my dad about it, and he sent me this letter, long letter about it, had written a poem about it. And uh, anyway, I told him, you know, I'm not going to. He told everybody, People were peeling out of the college parking lot, throwing gravel. Everybody was so mad at how mean I was that I wouldn't go out with this guy. His dad was a professor on the college. He was well-liked. You know, um, I was seen as the villain. No, it wasn't like you don't want to, so he should take no for an answer. 
So he just keeps coming back. And finally, the third year, he comes and uh, he's a little bit more humble this time. You wore him down. <laughs> and what? And this is what I finally told him. I don't know what to do with you. All the other guys I tell him no, and they go away, and you just keep coming back. And so I said, I'll go out with you a few times till you can figure out this meant to be. I know it's not. And so I went out a few times, chaperoned, and fell head over heels. And one of the things the day before he asked me to marry him, and when guys would tease me about going out, I would say, my dad tells me, you know, I have to be conquered. The night before he asked me to marry him, he said, um, listen, I know your dad has said this, and I can't conquer you, but when I have trouble, I'll just pray and God will conquer you for me. Mm. And guess what? I thought, that's the right answer. So for 34 years, that's I thought, you know, the way I thought it was. Um, the last seven years, what I've learned is God had nothing to do with that shit. Not a thing. How I didn't commit suicide, I don't know. How I didn't die from the stress, I don't know. But I've learned this. That umbrella shit. God created me a woman because he needed a woman, you know? He doesn't belittle me or subtract on my account sheet because I'm a female. In fact, he celebrates it. And he has made a way for me here in New York with such love and protection that I can stand with my head up and know I am a creation of the divine. And he says, see this woman? I created her. You are not allowed to use my name to treat her with disrespect. And that has been the most amazing thing that I've learned. One of the things that I learned far too late in life is probably you and I both growing up, we're told that taking God's name in vain was saying, oh my God, or yeah. God damn, or this or that, anything yeah. like that. Yeah. And what I've realized, uh, probably big time, starting in 2016, when a certain someone ran for president and won, mostly with the support of evangelical Christians, was that no... Taking God's name in vain is using God yeah. for your sometimes really fucked up purposes, <laughs> right? Yep, exactly. It just is. Mm -hmm. When every single time your dad, your husband, anyone has ever told you yeah. that, hey, if I can't conquer you, God will. Yeah. That's taking God's name in vain. It is. Well, I'm glad that you made it through those 34 years. One of my favorite, probably one of the worst points of your life, but one of my favorite parts of your story is when you finally got away. So 34 years in that marriage, yeah. raised how many children? Seven. Seven children. 
Can you, well, however long you want to take, but briefly recount <laughs> the day that you finally got the whatever up mm-hmm. to tell him off and leave? Because that probably one of the most important days of your life. Yeah, I would say so. Like I said, I'd spent a year and a half drawing boundaries. Um, I had finally figured out I wasn't being a submissive, loving wife, forgiving wife. I was enabling someone who is so off in their viewpoint of reality. And I was helping and I don't like helping things that are wrong, you know. And uh, I had laid out, I'm no longer going to be an enabler for you. I thought I was being loving and submissive. I'm enabling. And we're talking, I've, I've, I've addressed this for over 30 years. Deal with it. If you don't, then this is a choice for me. So I didn't know how to leave. I, I had been uh, counseled, you got to get away from him. And so the prayer became, I can't do it. Uh, you know, my greatest fear was hurting the name of God. And so the prayer was, God, if you'll kill me, nobody else will know. Nobody's going to care enough to know. Mm. He'll just go with the flow. Everybody's just going to think he's the wonderful, you know, godly man. The kids don't have to know. And I happened to mention my prayer to my doctor. And uh, he was like, you got to change your prayer. Your body hears you. And I was like, well, I am oh, wow. dying. I-, I am dying. And so I was like, well, God, you know, I, I, I really think that's the best uh, alternative here because I want to protect your name. We had traveled in eight years in 16 states doing revivals for families. And it was going to hurt all those people. It was hurt the name of God. And, and I was like, so here's the deal. If you have another plan, you're going to have to show me. You're going to have to have a fulcrum happen. And I promise I'll get out. But I don't know how to leave this. I don't know how to do it. We had gone to talk to uh, a friend to help him with his finances. He lied, and he he was awful. And I'd happened to mention on the phone to the friend before the setup, he goes, look, I've told him, he, you're his wife. He's got to tell you everything that's going on financially. I didn't have a clue. He would lie about it all the years. He didn't want me opening any bills. I wasn't allowed to ask questions. If I did, he accused me of wanting to control him, that I thought I was better than him. And so I obediently didn't open bills. I didn't, you know, but he would gripe and complain and blame me. I said, well, you know, how much are we in debt? What's going on? Tell me. I have a logistical mind. I I could help you. You just think you're better than I am? No, I'm your wife. So this guy was like, he have told him, you're his wife. You got to know everything. So I said, look, you won't let me help talk to somebody. This guy loves you. He's your friend. He's genius in this area. He's not going to belittle you or think you're stupid. Go. So I had to go as part of the deal. We went. And when I talked to the guy on the phone, I said, well, he lies about this. This man got so incensed, angry. You don't say, you don't speak against your husband. So in this meeting, this guy, rather than addressing her finances, decides to dress me down Mm. and tell me how sorry I am that I have even mentioned that he lies and that I don't appreciate who he is. Anyway, um, on the way, and I walked out of the meeting. I said, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. And I walked out. We get in the suburban to go home. And the man I'm married to has taken, oh, this is good energy. 
And so he pulls a really charming passive, and I've been researching passive aggressive sociopaths, you know. And he said, look, you just need to get back on my team and work with me here. I lost it. I said, I've been on your team for 34 years. I mean, I was his wife. I didn't have, I was his wife in the church and doing, that's what I did. His team, I had been on his team. I had helped build his team. And I just said, you're a son of a bitch. And I don't, I really don't know who was more shocked, me or him. And he said, I'm fixing to pull over and tell you something. And I don't know, I felt free. I thought, well, that felt good. And uh, he pulled over and he gets in my face with his finger and yelling at me, which he had never done. I mean, but I'd never called him a son of a bitch. He had never been in my face with his finger yelling at me. Um, You know, when he's yelling, Satan, in the name of Jesus, you're not allowed to speak through my wife. And I, this struck me as a little amusing, you know, that this man has created the situation. I've bet everything. And now he's saying Satan is speaking through me. And it was like, this was the fulcrum. This is it. And I got my purse, opened the door. Started walking down the interstate. I was terrified. I was free. I was so many things all at once. And, you know, as is my habit to this day, it was like, God, I did it. You know, that was a fulcrum that I needed. I did it. And, you know, it was dusky dark. I could get killed by a car on the side of the interstate. I don't mind walking, but need kind of help, whatever, however you want to handle this. And I look up and there's a car already parked. Her lights are off. You know how long it takes to pull off and slow down? The lights are already off in the car. And as I look up and it's in the distance, I said, well, God, there's a car pulled over. I don't know who it is. Could be a serial killer, but it's better than what I'm going. I'm going to get in the car with them. But I'd like to know if I could trust him. Passenger door open, this lady gets out, and I can tell she's not a teenager. You know, she has hair, but hair kind of blowing back in the wind, and she's walking very purposefully towards me. And I can feel from this woman. And the closer she gets, the harder I'm crying. And she gets between me and traffic, and immediately I was like, this woman is a protector. Mm. She gets between me and traffic, and she just slides her arm around my waist and gets my hand. And she goes, ma'am, do you want to ride? And I said, I do. She said, God said to stop and pick you up. Mm. I said, I told her I needed help. So we get to her car. She opens the back door. Her daughter's driving. And then I understood why she was walking purposefully. I didn't know he had parked and was running. And as she goes to put me in, he grabs me. And he said, y'all, we've had a fight, but she's just fine, and she's going with me. And I just turned around and looked up at him, and I said, I'm going to call the police. And as usual, he said, he never handles the situation appropriately. He's like, well, I'm going to call the police and tell them you're with somebody I don't know. I said, go ahead. Go ahead. Please do. And she shut the door. She got in, and he you know, gets down in the seat and in her face, you know, and he's like, uh, I don't even know who you are. And again, this woman, she's rescued before, very savvy, calmly, 
I'm a doctor with the Choctaw Nation. Doesn't give her name, gives her credentials. And he said, well, I'm following you. She said, you do whatever you have to do. And he gets out and closes the door, and she tells her daughter to start driving. And um, I'm distraught. (laughs) And when I can kind of calm down to a little snub, (laughs) she turns around, and she said, "Um, you have to get away from that man. And I said, I just did. Mm. She said, you are never to get where he can lay a hand on you. And I said, okay. She said, now get help for you. And I said, I will. And I used her phone. I'd left mine in my car and called one of my sons, Garrison. And I said, and I used her phone. He goes, mom, whose phone are you on? And I told him what happened. He goes, I'm going to get you a hotel room. And the provision of her and my son getting a hotel room began for me to take steps and be brought to New York and to start this new, arduous, victorious journey. Thank you for sharing that. I know that's not easy. So, seven years in New York. Yep. (laughs) It hasn't always been pleasant. No. It's been very hard. Yep. What did you think when you first arrived in New York? This is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love it here. This yeah. is my favorite city on planet Earth. Yeah. But it is vastly different than anywhere in Arkansas. Just a wee bit. Just a wee bit. Wee bit. So, yeah, what what were you thinking when you arrived here? Were you, I mean, I'm sure surprised, amazed, scared, all, yeah. all of the things. The overwhelming, intruding thought was these people are certifiable crazy to live here. One I think from conversations you and I've had, New York was always somewhere you wanted to be. Not me. You remember the old Pace Picante commercials of the cowboys around the fire, you know, and reading the back? New York City. Yeah, 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 exactly. New York City. (laughs) That was me in New York City. I'm not a tourist. and, And did you know that when I was a girl, I was taught on Broadway, they're on stage talking about sinful things. Mm, So why would I ever come here, you know? But my oldest son, Matthew, got me and brought me here. So I didn't come to New York. I got brought to New York, kind of carried in a car, and all my shattered pieces were put in this seat, seat belt, the door shut, and my shattered pieces got brought to New York. So for me, it wasn't this, oh, this is New York. I've always wanted to come here. I'd never been here. This was, I'm never going to be okay again. And these people are certifiably crazy. Um, The amount of people walking around. You know, New York is a walking city. I mean, Arkansas, we have cars and we we, Sidewalks empty. Sidewalks are empty, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, people everywhere. You sit close to a subway station. I mean, it's just like people are being spit out all the time. Yeah. And they're coming out in groups. And what I found, I I stood on a corner. I timed it one day like 20 minutes watching these tunnels spit people out. They're within inches of each other, maybe even bump with a bag. They don't look at each other. They do not engage. I I could not comprehend this. So these are people. These are humans. They're touching. They're close. They do not look. They do not engage, except to say New York things about if you happen to brush somebody, you know. 
I could not comprehend that there was anything good or that this would be a place for me to grow. I couldn't comprehend anything except waiting for death. I was still waiting for death. Mm. It never came. <laughs> and instead, I've learned how to live. And it's amazing. You know, I was thinking a week ago, I've been waking up and I'm like, oh my goodness, what can I do today? It's an amazing way to wake up instead of, okay, now I have a job. I have my own apartment. Now life for me has become, oh my goodness, I get to choose today what I'm going to get into, what I, a new adventure I want to create, how I want to engage. And I've never had this opportunity. And thanks to the story and the fundraiser, I can. I love it. Yeah, I do. Can you talk for a couple minutes? We could we could obviously spend hours just on your seven years here. We won't do that. <laughs> but I do want to briefly kind of engage you on the period of your time here in New York where you were unhoused, where you didn't yeah. have a place to go. And that happened as a result of people you were staying with that moved away mm-hmm. and that safety net was gone. What did you learn I'm sure it's good, bad, and ugly. <laughs> what did you learn? What, what, what are your takeaways now, uh, years removed from that, about your time as a homeless woman from Arkansas, having left uh, a terrible marriage, having experienced all kinds of losses with some of your children and otherwise? What was that period like? I'm sure it felt very d- dark and hopeless and despairing. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, um, they moved, and I made it with friends' help a couple of months, and I'm not the type of mama who's like, oh, I've got kids, let me go live with them, you know, them take care of me. I'm like, no, they've got a life to live, I'm going to figure this out, got to stand on my own two feet, and so I told them, you know, it's probably going to get pretty rough. I had been trying, when I knew for months before, to find a room, I went to de Blasio's domestic violence unit, you know. They're like, oh, well, you have to go into the city shelter, and then from there we can get you an apartment, you know, for the homeless-style apartments type stuff. How long will that take? We don't know. I've since done a little research. It could be up to two years. Yeah, yeah. In the city shelter, you're pretty well guaranteed to be raped, everything stolen. So I began to look for alternative things. So there came a point where I had two friends take my extra belongings. I was allowed one suitcase and my purse. And I got in a taxi and gave an address. And it was October 31st and went into a homeless shelter. There were 30 of us women in one room with 15 sets of bunk beds. That first night, the women all had to sit in the two rows in the back of this chapel room. There were lots of chairs up front, and that's where the men sit. This has been a men's shelter for over 100 years. There's 200-something men, 30 women. And so against the back wall, in the middle of the room, is a sound booth with the half wall. And my chair became that in the corner. So I had the sound booth when I sat down, covered me here, the wall at my back, and I had some protection. One of the counselors came to me in that corner the first night. I I didn't know what was going to happen to me. I didn't know if, I didn't know. And he leaned over and he goes, oh, listen. These people, these people aren't going to hurt you. They're just puppy dogs. Don't be afraid of them. 
I was so uh, paralyzed. I couldn't speak. Internally, I was absolutely horrified that he thought I was afraid of them. I had run a ministry for the homeless for four years in Fort Smith. I was not the least bit afraid of these people. I was afraid for me. Personally, what was I doing to myself? Not what I thought would be done to me. And it took me probably a couple of months. But I found after two weeks, I went and bought a journal. I worked at Paper Source part-time, and I could get a discount. And I bought a journal, and I started writing my emotions. You know, it's the only way I, I thought I was going to make it. Um, so I would write. Writing, I wrote over almost 300 pages in those four months. But one day at Starbucks, one of my customers, as I'm cleaning tables, she goes, Deetra, do you live in the area? And I said, well, I used to live in Carroll Gardens with my son and his wife. Where do you live now? Now, New Yorkers have asked me thousands of questions, but that specific, people don't usually say, where do you live now, you know? I didn't have an answer prepared. I'm very honest. Yeah, sure. I, I, I said, oh, I, I, I live in a homeless shelter. And she was like, uh, no, you don't. I said, I do. And she said, oh, my goodness, I think I'm going to cry. And I said, oh, don't cry. It's just part of my journey. But she was running out crying. For me, I stood there. I'm telling you, it was like a thousand-watt light bulb went off in my brain. And I realized that didn't embarrass me at all. In mm. fact, it was kind of freeing. Mm. And so, as is my habit, I was like, God, that didn't embarrass me, you know, to say I'm homeless. It bothered her, but it didn't bother me. And I, and I was like, I, I, I knew that the address and that homeless shelter didn't define who I was or who I was going to be, which was amazing because when I went in, it defined me. And I didn't know if I could ever be, go beyond that. And um, the next thought in my brain was, why are you letting them in from your childhood, your parents, your children, and the man you married to find you? And that was like a, a, sh- a you know, jolt of electricity because I was letting all of them define me. And it was just like in that moment I realized every day when I get dressed at the shelter, do my makeup and hair, I grabbed this thick black invisible coat of guilt and shame my whole life. Mm. I thought it was an obligatory garment to wear, that it was my identity. And I just, I remember, and I'm very, very visual, so these pictures are in my mind, just let it go in the floor of Starbucks. And here's what I knew, somebody would grab it up because we as humans feel like we have to wear guilt and shame all the time. But I didn't need it, and I and and the air was so cold around me, I'd never walked without it. Mm. And I knew it was going to be hard. But I also knew that if the address didn't define me, that I was physically living, because let's face it, homelessness has a stench. It has a definition. It has all of those things, even in my own mind. But I knew that the address had nothing to do with who and what I was going to be. And that I no longer, if I didn't have that visual, I don't know that I ever could have had the concept of neither does the other have to define me. So I see my four months in the homeless shelter as one of the hardest ways to learn that lesson, but I don't think I would have learned it any other way. I would have known, yeah, you can't let those things define you, but I did. I just did. 
And I began to walk away and go, no, I decide who I am. And at that time, you know, the women of the shelter, you had to get out in the morning and you couldn't go in before four and they had to line up. You couldn't line up on this street. You had to line up on this side street. And I would just wait around till time and they would all go in and then I'd walk in. And I never lined up. Because I could sit where I would wait and watch people walk by and shake their heads. People didn't like the homeless shelter. And after that time, I would go join my fellow sisters. And I remember the first time I came, I had this little deli I would go sit and I walked the corner and they saw me, Deetra. And I walked across the street to get in line for the first time. Stand by me, stand by me. They would, you know, give me places and the people would walk by. And I just held my head up. Think what you want to think. I'm not defined by your thoughts. But I want to stand bravely with my sisters. We're at a hard place in life. But this doesn't mean this is the end of our life. And that was a momentous thing for me. Because I didn't want to be in that line. And I was in it for quite a while. But... um, How I got out, another woman customer asked me the exact same two questions. Exactly. Period. The whole thing. And I said, I live in a homeless shelter. No, you don't. She asked questions. She didn't shy away. And she said, can my husband and I meet with you tomorrow when you get off work? Yes, I get off at this time. They came in almost every day, two of my favorite customers. And so we sat down and he was like, can I ask questions? And I said, look, I don't go around telling it. But ask what you want. He asked personal questions. He asked financial questions. And after our conversation, he was like, Deetra, we just know you as our barista, but we love you. Mm. Can't imagine this. So for the next six months, we're going to give you this many hundreds of dollars a month. We don't ever want to be paid back. But we want to invest in you. You know, they told me one day this. I kind of keep them up, you know, on some things I'm doing. And she said, you're still the best investment we've ever made. Wow. For those two people to invest in me was an incredible moment. But it was also a moment when I stepped back into the reality of where I was at that time, not ashamed, and let one runs out crying, one's asked questions, you know? Both women provided moments for me that were revolutionary. One, for me to realize I don't have to be defined by what people say or think. And one, for me to have the opportunity to get out and find a place. If there's one thing that I keep thinking over and over again as you tell your story, and I've, I've read it, I've heard it uh, in various form, formats. Call, call them angels. Call them whatever you want. I just think they're... I mean, fine. Maybe they're angels. Who knows? (laughs) But I think people are good. Yes, we all have shadows. Mm -hmm. We all have things that we are ashamed of and should be ashamed of. Things we've done, ways we've acted, things we've said, bad times in our lives. But there's so many good people in the world that... If and when we tell our stories, when we get vulnerable, when we get honest, 
there are people that will line up to help. Yeah. And I also love that you, you see both of these women that we're talking about right now as vital parts of the story. Even the one that, for whatever reason, left crying and didn't come back. Didn't mm-hmm. come back to ask the questions. Didn't come back to help. She was just overwhelmed with what she had just heard. And it's also a reminder that, I mean, you were working, you were barista at a Starbucks. Mm-hmm. I would, I, I feel like when I, if I walk into a coffee shop <laughs> and I look at people there, I would feel pretty justified in saying, okay, everybody's doing okay here. Maybe they're not, but they're not, they're not homeless. Yeah. And yet, yeah, you had favorite customers. Yeah. You were good at what you did. Yeah. And you were experiencing these hardships. It's a reminder to me, especially talking with you and those listening are part of a community called Let's Give a Damn that are trying in all the ways that we can to do better and be better. Mm-hmm. Keep your eyes open, people, mm-hmm. because you never know the people you interact with, the people you bump on the on the subway, the people you brush on the street, your barista, your server at your favorite restaurant. You never know what people are going through. I know that sounds so cliche to say, but it's so fucking true. It is. That you just don't know if your favorite barista is homeless and carrying decades, not years, decades of guilt and shame on her shoulders. How did you get out of it? What's what's the last few years looked like? And we'll 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 talk about this briefly and then I want to get into what's happening. The last okay. really the last 22 weeks, 22 weeks ago is when mm-hmm. Brandon shared your story yeah. and everything's changed. Between the time that these angels <laughs> invested in you yeah. and in their own words made the best investment of their lives. What did the coming out of homelessness period look like to the point where I don't actually know if I've ever asked you this and even in our private conversations like I love Brandon I love humans of New York yeah as a fellow storyteller he has a much bigger platform than I do but as a as a fellow storyteller I get looking for unique stories looking for interesting stories trying to tell the story of being human mm-hmm between the time that these angels made this uh, investment to the time that Brandon found your story and things changed for you forever, what did that period look like? Well, I got out of the shelter. I'd worked two jobs while I was there. I'd saved like $4,000, so I was able to buy a twin bed for the room I rented. My drummer in my band um, had bought an apartment out here at Harlem. And he knew I was in the homeless shelter. He goes, come out here and look. You know, I'm going to rent to somebody. I'd rather rent to you than a college kid who will trash my place while I'm on tour. So I came out. Decided to do it, even though I knew I'd have to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning to get to Starbucks because I'm an opener. So I began to work multiple jobs. I worked four jobs seven days a week for years. Not knowing if I was going to be able to make it. Sure. You know, hold up. Because they were kids' jobs. You know, Starbucks, you run around with your head cut off. Chicken with the heads cut off. Anyway, little by little, I um, was able to make relationships. And, you know, if I worked five different jobs in a three-block stretch on Smith Street. I got called the mayor of Smith Street. 
I was an afternoon nanny, a dog sitter one weekend. I sold jeans. I did paper source. I put together for Tatley tattoos, temporary tattoo packets. I worked I at love Starbucks. Tatley. Yeah. I I would go, they would let me come um, do big jobs, extra jobs. And then I became just whenever I had a day off, they hired me. So I had all these different ways of bringing in money, but it was tiring. And so I I put out my resume, but nobody would even interview me. Well, I wouldn't even get a call for any of the jobs I applied for. And it'd be like a receptionist, those kinds of things. And so, again, as is my habit, I was like, what am I going to do? If you can't get in front of somebody to interview. But I was, like I said, I was probably 56 by then. And, I mean, here in New York, they got kids to do all these jobs. They're not going to hire somebody that in their mind is ready to retire. And I thought, I'm, I'm just going to nasty away. They don't know. I have nothing. I have no Social Security. I have nothing. And so I thought, all my jobs come from my Starbucks customers. Because I said, can you help us at Tatley? Dietra, I'm the manager of Paper Source. Would you come be my greeter, you know, for Christmas? He just said, I just want you to stand in front of the door and say welcome in your southern accent, you know. So I stand there for four hours. Welcome to Paper Source. And I said, I can do more than do this, you know. <laughs> so I did all of these different things. And so I told like seven of my customers, some of my favorite ones, I need a full-time job. And one was a man who came in a lot. I adored him. He's, he's so much fun to talk to. I knew his husband. I'd met their oldest child. His dad had come in and introduced himself. He would come in with his computer and work. And we had chatted a bit. He knew I'd been in a homeless shelter. And um, he said, you're looking for a full-time job. I said, yeah. He goes, here's my card. Send me your resume. So I did. And he came in. And I said, listen, I don't I didn't have a clue what he did, where he worked. And I said, I'm not asking to work at your company. I'm just saying you're out there in the corporate world. You hear conversations. Conversations come up. We need a receptionist. All I'm saying is remember me. So he said, you know, we were, we were talking last night, my husband and I, and we, we knew three of our friends that needed. They've all hired somebody. We just don't know. I said, that's fine. Just listen. Just, just listen. So a couple of months later, he emailed, you know, Dietra, I know what your customer skill set is. I've got your resume. What about computer skills? Oh, there's the problem. I said, well, I have an iPad. I can order things and send emails. And I, I would talk to some of my friends like, oh, just lie and then do two tutorials. Well, I didn't even have a laptop. And uh, some friends would try to teach me, you know, a little bit. But unless you were doing it, sure. you know. So... Um, Anyway, he sent another email. Be expecting a call from the HR lady where I work. And so I looked up the company, and we set up a phone interview. Come to find out there's two companies with this name, and I researched the wrong one. And uh, so we did the phone interview, and I passed. I don't know how I passed. So I went in for in-person interviews. And I did... I interviewed with four different people, and they gave the job to somebody else. Honestly... I was relieved. When I got that email, was I a little disappointed? Yes. But it was also like, I thought the job was too much for me and I didn't want to hurt the company sure. while I'm learning. But the email said, we have, um, you know, our fiscal year's here. We're going to try to get some money in the middle of the year. And if we can, we have two jobs we think you'd be really good at. You know, we'll, we'll try to reach out. And I didn't know if it was just corporate. Bullshit. Bullshit. Yeah. So, no, they called me back. So I went in, and they created a job called HR Assistant. And um, I became the HR Assistant, the first HR Assistant for YSC Consulting, and Eric Pliner became the global CEO. 
my Starbucks customer. That man has the most amazing ability to cheer others on, to love others, to speak into their lives, to look at your skill set, you know, recognize things that I didn't see. Mm. And I had these amazing opportunities. With I worked for three and a half years uh, in this corporate environment. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think I ever achieved, you know, total corporate professionalism. I just always have this Southern twist to it. But I loved my time there and everything I got to do. And one of the most exciting things is I started in end of January and he became the global CEO in May and we had a global conference in London. And the they worked with TEDx to become a TEDx site. So they took submissions and he came to me and he said, I think you should make a submission for a TEDx talk. He goes, I'm not on the committee. I have nothing to do with it. And I was like, I, I, I don't have a I don't, I don't have a TED Talk in me. And he goes, I, I kind of think you do. I said, yeah, I don't. He goes, I'm going to put time in your calendar and we're going to talk about it. And, and I was like, well, you don't tell the global CEO you don't want to talk to him. So I had a couple of days. And I was like, you know, God, do I have it in me? And so I had an idea. When we talked, I said, what do you think about this? He goes, try it. There were 16 submissions. They chose eight, and I was one of them. I stood in the Science Museum in London and gave this speech of my life. I wrote over 20 hours for this 16-minute speech, and it was the cost and reward of leaving organizational identities, which was something psychology is all about, organizational identity, IO psychology, which is what that company is rich in. And it had cost me everything, and yet the rewards that I have reaped. And, and you know, when I first got here, I would, people would ask me lots of questions and I would say, you know, I lost everything I've ever known. It was about three years in to my seven years that I realized that was true, except for one thing. I had not lost me. And I have learned that I'm a very valuable asset. And I had been taught my whole life, I'm only valued if there's a man over me who protects me and, and I get his permission. And if I don't agree, I have to appeal a certain way to be godly or else I'm out of line. I'm a valuable asset, asset all on my own. And giving that speech and the response from the company globally was incredible. And one of the directors told me, you know, about a year ago, he goes, Dietra, that speech was two and a half years ago, and we still talk about it to this day. Mm. And the global CEO, we went out to lunch after that, and he said, you taught us how to be human with dignity. And I think that's the key to life. You keep mentioning, you know, we have shadows, we have all these things. The deal is we're human. Being a human encompasses all of that. Yeah. To act like we're not human denies ourselves the growth. To act like we are less than human denies ourselves the growth. But to be human with dignity allows us to grow in a manner that has value, a manner that's rich, and a manner in which we can learn to take care of ourselves and it gives out. And that's what I think is important. How did Brandon find you? <laughs> a volunteer in the homeless shelter wrote him about me. Five years after I'm out of the homeless shelter, 
Rachel Gurley decides to write Brandon. I still go five years after I'm out of the shelter. That's a long time. And she wrote him, and she messaged me last December. She goes, Dietra, do you um, do you know Humans of New York? I said, oh, yeah, I've read some stories. Love it. I just got through talking to the author-producer, Brandon, and he may be interested in featuring you. Would you be up for it? Why not? And so he texted. And, I mean, he had scheduled an interview within four days. And I knew enough to know you got to pick where your picture's made. And so I wanted to be in front of my cigar room. My favorite thing is being in a chair out on the sidewalk watching Harlem go by with some music and my cigar. And so he did. He came and he said, you know, I do two styles. I do a one page or I do a series. And he goes, let's just talk and we'll figure it out. And like 15 minutes in, he leaned over and he used his hands and got my wrist, both my wrist. And he's like, I am so proud of you. I'm going to do a whole series. We talked for like an hour and 45 minutes. We did a photo shoot around the neighborhood and I had taken the whole day off. I spent the afternoon weeping. I had had a lot of people in my time say, oh, Deidre, you're so brave. You know, you, you are so strong. And I would never tell them, but it hair-lipped me. It hurt my feelings. How dare you tell me I'm brave when I'm broken, when I'm hurt, when I'm so scared, when I don't know what's going to happen to me? How dare you use that word brave? It's such a valiant word. Really? And that I'm strong? Do you understand there isn't a piece? I'm like a shattered piece of glass. I can't even be put back together. How Brandon handled it and the things that he said and that he was going to do a whole series. And he had several things to say in the interview. And this man is known around the world for telling stories. Yeah. Validated me. And he said, this is one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. And I felt seen because he didn't take away the fear and the pain. It was just like, I'm so proud of you. The only other thing that's been said to me that felt, I sobbed. <laughs> this woman was doing a facial on me and started asking me questions. I told her all the story. She shared part of her similar story. And towards the end, she's sitting behind me. She just leans over and whispers in this ear, thank you for not laying down and giving up. Mm. And I'm, this sobs just erupted out of me. I said, oh my goodness, thank you for saying that. She said, you could have done that. I said, it's exactly what I wanted to do. And Brandon had a way of saying, oh, my goodness, and I know stories. This is a story that's incredible. It's worth telling the world. And I thought for the first time, maybe what I've done has not been so normal, mundane, and it's been worth doing. And I worked hard. so hard to do these things and to know that I'm worth doing them for. And that is what he did for me and what the story has done for me. Several, many decades ago, a young man that you were dating grabbed your wrist yeah. and caused you pain and caused you to want to break up with him, rightfully so. Yeah. And then decades later, another man grabs your wrist in a non-painful way 
and says, this is a story the whole world should hear about. <laughs> I would never have made that correlation. I think life is all about trying to recognize those things. I really do believe that there is redemption in many more ways and, and yeah, than we could ever imagine. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think it's an accident that Brandon grabbed your wrist and told you those things. Because again, I think life comes full circle on so many of these things. Yeah. So since June, yeah. life's been topsy-turvy for you. <laughs> um, talk about, I mean, many things have happened. You've done this, you did this show that mm -hmm. I was honored to attend where you sang, told your story. Mm -hmm. People came from other countries yep. to hear you sing and tell stories. Yep. Um, Brandon did a fundraiser. Yep. And, and, and you're right. I've been following Humans of New York for a long, long time. Love the stories. 15, <laughs> a 15 part story. Yeah. Um, I was rereading it this morning, just thinking about our conversation. Um, so beautifully told. I think the photos, we've talked about this. I think you, who you are. Yeah. Classy, you know, classy older woman with a cigar in her hands. <laughs> I think that really helped. Yeah. It yeah. just is so it's unique, so startling. Yeah. What are you excited about? that is happening right now? There are many things happening, some that you can yeah. talk about, some that you can't. True. What are you excited about that is happening right now? One, I'm launching my own line of cigars on the 17th of November. Somehow the cigar is gonna symbol all around the world of resilience and freedom. Now, when I asked to have my picture made with my cigar in front of my cigar room, I didn't have a clue. I just knew this cigar was important to me. And so I thought, and people were like, if you ever do your own cigars, we'd love to help you promote it. If that comes about, I don't know. And I received thousands of messages. So those messages are lost. And I don't know how to even find who the person was that said that to me. But I thought, why not do a cigar? My own cigar. So I approached the owner of the cigar room and, uh, and a couple of big cigar companies have reached out to me and given me gifts. You know, we love your story. You know, we want to, and we love that you love cigars. We'd like to send you a gift. That was amazing to me. Uh, people come smoke cigars with me. People stop and, you know, say, oh, my goodness, I read your story, you know. So I approached the owner, and he was like, you know what? I'm going to go to the Dominican Republic. is where he's from. Why don't you go with me? And I went to design one cigar. And I came home with a line of three cigars. And I didn't want just a cigar, you know. I wanted something that I liked. And these three cigars take you on a journey. And I don't know everything in my life I see in pictures. And I've got one cigar that's a Connecticut, just a kiss of sweetness, a little bit of kick of spice. And that is, you know, to me reminiscent of, it's kind of life. It can have some sweetness, but some kick to it, you know, but you do it anyway. And then the Habana, my personal favorite, just has a smoothness. And as I smoked it the first time, you know, Felix was like, what do you think? I said, I think this cigar right here represents, yeah, I've lived some life and I've conquered it. 
the Madure. I went, I smoked it. He's like, what do you think? I said, this is going to sitting at the feet of your grandfather. And he's telling you those war stories, telling you what you got to look out for, telling you who you better be careful with. And this is no one. I got some things to learn, but I can do it. And so I am very excited to launch Dietra's Story, a cigar line. I'm also working with one of my musicians. I've written a couple of songs that are ready to go record. But I'm going to work on an off-Broadway play. I wrote a one-woman play, did it two performances four years ago. But my goal is um, One Woman's Journey to Love is what I've always called my shows. And when I did that first show, I knew I was on a journey to love. Honestly, I thought it was to be loved by a man. I would love to experience that. I had no idea that the journey to love was learning to love me. And I figured that Mm. out along the way. And it was a realization that slapped me upside the head because that was the hardest, that was the hardest journey to love. You know, how do I love someone so imperfect? How do I love someone who's a complete failure? How do I love someone that is all these things? I didn't know how to do that. And I've learned. So I have a final paperwork should be here this month of One Woman's Journey to Love, a nonprofit organization. And I want to encourage everybody, woman, man, take your own personal journey to love. You may can do that in the confines of your support system, your family and friends. Incredible. But we still need to figure out what's cultural, what someone has put on me because of their own insecurities or fears that I'm living that I don't have to, you know? What's best for me? And then, um, so I'm working to write original songs. I want to have two albums. Because if I'm going to encourage you to take a journey, for me, there would be a song I would latch on to in the middle of hard times that I would listen to on replay five days straight. I'd sob. And then I'd get to another stage in this other song. So I want to write albums of songs that people can know for the journey. Uh, so I've got one of my pianists, Thomas Linger, um, we are working to, I've got the words. He's going to help me add the melodies. And then um, my next shows, I want to be a play where it's still going to be my shows, but more dramatic, if you will. And I really want to hone in on the importance of this journey to love. During one of your One Woman's Journey to Love shows from a while back, you talk about how you sang Dance With Me. <laughs> and you talk about how you kind of alluded to it earlier in our conversation. We talk about how you tried for years mm-hmm. to get your husband to dance with you. Yeah. And it never happened. No. And then you sang that song. Yeah. And people started dancing with you. Yeah. I feel like that story that you've told about that moment is unfolding all around you in your life. You tell your story, you ask for help, you be vulnerable, you're honest about what has happened to you and what is happening to you. And it seems mm-hmm. like people are lining up to help. Do you agree? I would. I would not have equated it with dancing with me, but yes, it is. I mean, life is... A dance. It is. And I feel like that moment when I read your story for the first time on Humans of New York, before we even met, before I reached out and said, can we smoke together? I want to meet you. Yeah. I remember that sticking out to me, that 
you told these complete strangers. All I wanted was for him to dance with me. Yeah. Dancing is so special. Yeah, it is. It's such a beautiful moment. It's very vulnerable, especially for those of us that are not, you know, you talk about wanting to learn ballroom dancing, right? Yeah. Then it gets more refined and, you know, you yeah. know, you know the movements and whatnot. But dancing like most of us dance is, when I dance, I am terrible. <laughs> I am terrible. My family, they make fun of me when we have dance parties in our apartment because I just don't know how to move. I just kind of just flop all over the place. <laughs> but it's such a, there's also nothing like it. Yeah. There's also nothing like just moving. Just move. Like let the, even if it doesn't look good. Yeah. Just start moving because that's what our bodies want to do when we hear these things. And so as I look at your story, as I hear what's happening since you've told your story, all the things you've been through, and even the things that I may know about that people don't know about yeah. yet, all the things that are developing in your life, it came as a result of you being vulnerable and then people stepping up and saying, we'll dance with you. We'll dance with you. And I'm so thrilled. There's so much more I want to talk about with you, but maybe we'll do it again in a, <laughs> in a different podcast. Or You and I will definitely continue talking about these things. But from what we've told today, um, I'm so thrilled to know you, um, to be helping you in any way that I can. And I hope you have so many more years of life to be able to continue to share your story, and not just your story, because because there are so many people. I think what's unique about, because again, I know where you've come from. That was yeah. my world, that very strict, domineering over women, men. Are, that's where I came from. I know that world all too well. Yeah. So many don't make it out. I think that's the amazing part. They just stick with it. They stay yeah. in the marriage, not for 34 years, for 44, 54 yeah. They don't find any semblance of freedom until he's gone or whatever. And you got out miraculously with the help of angels. Mm -hmm. uh, that very pivotal, that very pivotal son of a bitch that changed everything for <laughs> yeah. you. Um, so the cigars, for those listening, I'll link to those. If you're if you are a cigar smoker, please order them. Do you want to give any uh, insight into what you're going to initially sell? Because I think that's interesting too, like how you're going to sell okay. them initially. Well, it's initially the uh, premiere of it is just going to be a box of five cigars. So you'll have two Connecticut, two Havana, and one Madura to take the journey yourself to decide what you like. That's what's going to be available to order. I only have a thousand boxes. Hopefully, they're going to sell. And then we will have the individual boxes or individual cigars that you can buy. Now, for the launch, I have the boxes, but I'm 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 going to talk to the owner. We're going to open up. People could buy one cigar. So we're going to have that launch party here at the cigar room next Thursday night. Um, so we're going to figure out how to do that. Some people aren't going to want to pay for a box of five, but get one cigar. But ordering, it will be this box of three different kinds of cigars for you to take your own journey. The story is on the back that I've written. And, you know, cigars are special that you light them. You know, you you just let the leaves start getting a little bit of flames and they start releasing the essence. And leaves are like us. They go through the storms of life. The good years, the good rain, the good sun, the ones that aren't so much. And their essence is different all the time. And then once you get everything kind of going, you take the deep draws and pull the fire into it and enjoy, sit back and relax. And that's what a cigar has taught me to do is relax. Sit back, breathe deep, which I didn't know anything about, and relax. And um, so it, that initial will just be the box of five, a variety. 
And by the time this releases, this podcast, DietrichStory.com will be up and running. That's where you can hear, that's where you can buy the cigars, hear more of the story. Um, what, what, uh, what do you want people to go follow? I mean, what's your, what's your Instagram? Well, Dietra Story yep, is going to be, be the up. cigar. Yep. Uh, one, you spell out one, one woman NYC, and then the number one is my Instagram of just daily life. Um, and then Dietra Denise on Facebook, whatever, whatever you have. But um, it is just, you know, the journey of, to me, being grateful for what I get to learn. Looking through the shit of the hard times, finding what good nutrients there are in that. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do a whole speech on shit one time. You know these men that do these outdoor outhouses for parties and stuff. They talk about they hose it down and there's still vitamins and stuff. Yeah. So it's going through the shit of your life and finding those nutrients that you need to metabolize and letting the shit go. So you know I think that's important and that's um, you know so that's what my one woman NYC is for in Dietra Denise. Um, so yeah, follow me and let's, uh, take a journey to love and learn together. I want to end with this, uh, quote that I've used mostly in the context, because this is the context in which it was written, mostly in the context of talking about our climate crisis and the way things are going in the world and how we are to live. But I think it applies here as I was just thinking about wrapping up. This quote is from Paul Goodman in his book called Drawing the Line, Political Essays. The quote is this. Suppose you had the revolution you are talking and dreaming about. Suppose your side had won and that you had the kind of society that you wanted. Mm. How would you live, you personally, in that society? Start living that way now. End quote. I think that applies. Mm. This revolution of love, Mm. of hope, of owning your story, not staying in the shit in the mire, but getting out of it. All of that is what I hope for everybody, Dietra and everybody alike. Yeah. And so that's the society we want in the future. How about we start living that now? How about we start embodying that now, living that hope now? Because that's what happened. People saw the hope. They They heard the story. They saw the hope. They saw that you, even though you didn't know that when the woman came and asked you and you finally said, well, I'm homeless. I don't have a place to live. All of that, all of that vulnerability, all of that. And then you then you realized, wait, I don't have to be ashamed about that. All mm-hmm. The whole story. We've got to start living that way now. Yeah. To be a light, to be a hope to those that are still in it. I think that's True. why so many people are attracted to your story. Is because they're, in, in their own life, in their own experiences, everybody's being held back by something. Yeah. Might not be a, the, the, the emotional, verbal abuse of a spouse mm-hmm. or whatever. But we've all got stuff that's holding us back. Yeah. And we can get beyond that. Yeah. And that's Dietrich's story. What you bring to the table truly is rich. <laughs> and I'm really grateful to know you. Thank you for sharing your story. Again, you've said this a thousand times and you sat with me for an hour and a half and told it again. So thank you for that. And uh, I hope everybody listening will follow you and your journey online. Hope many of them get to meet you like I have. And um, yeah, we'll see where this journey takes you. I'm excited to watch it. The journey brought me you. You reached out said, can I just come hang and smoke with you? It's been an amazing opportunity to get to meet you, to get to hear about your life. Thank you for valuing mine. It's been my honor.
Friends, thank you so much for showing up, for spending some time with Dietra and me this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And please, most of all, show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins-Harn, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'm here for you. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.